Wild Missions original podcast. Over a century ago, the mountain lion, also known as a cougar, puma, or panther, was almost hunted to extinction across the US as people feared them and its risk to their livestock. By 1930, the US Biological Survey employed more than 200 professional cat hunters to help ranchers with livestock losses. Since then, this resilient species has made a remarkable comeback, albeit a significant decrease from its historic population levels. Today, more than ever, the mountain lion is mired in controversy, misinformation and fear and their very existence in the landscapes across America are inextricably entangled with the tricky politics of the management of wildlife reserves in the US. So what role does the mountain lion play in these ecosystems? What value, if any, does it provide to the local people and economies? And how do we move forward with the conservation of this species for all people? You could say it's quite the cougar conundrum. I'm Andy Varvel, and this is Cats of the Wild, Episode 6, The Value of the Mountain Lion. The mountain lion has the largest range of any wild mammal in the Americas. It is found as far north as the northern Yukon of Canada, right down to the southern tip of Chile. Along this range, it can be found in almost any type of habitat, but it prefers rocky, steep and forested habitats where available. The mountain lion is a large cat with a rounded head, slim body and long legs. The colour of its fur ranges from grey to dark brown and can even vary between siblings. Their weight depends on the habitat, with mountain lions in southern Chile and Canada weighing twice as much as those that live in the tropics. Whilst mountain lions can't roar, they vocalise through growls, hisses, chirps and whistles. They are solitary animals, most active at dusk and dawn. They prey on a large variety of animals, from rodents and small birds, through to deer and elk. However, in areas where they coexist with a larger jaguar, they tend to primarily prey on smaller mammals. My name is Mark Elbrock. I am the director of the Puma or Mountain Lion Program for Panthera, a wildcat conservation and science organization. Mark was born in Suffolk, England, and this is really where his journey with wildlife started. In the countryside, he learned about all the different animals, birds and plants of the local area, and he proudly caught his first rabbit at age five in a butterfly net which he released back to its burrow shortly after. I had just incredible mentors. My grandfather on my mother's side, which is the British side, was a tremendous naturalist and poet. And we'd just take these epic walks on public paths and try to catch rabbits and all sorts of things. And then uh, my great uncle worked in the Natural History Museum in London. So I was able to go into the back rooms as a small child and and be inspired by all sorts of people and unusual stuffed animals. But, you know, since that time, I 
I certainly have taken a rather circuitous journey to reach where I am today. And so, you know, I spent many years pursuing wildlife work, you know, via wildlife tracking or being the person that the biologist would hire to find and or perhaps secure an animal for wildlife research or conservation, um, rather than being the person actually, you know, coming up with questions. And so, you know, eventually it dawned on me that I'd like to answer my own questions. And so I, I did return to graduate school at 35 and um, it was wonderful. It, was, it provided me the opportunity to kind of make the leap from person who just worked full-time in the field to person who worked ill, but also got to work behind the scenes and kind of designing the project and kind of coming up with the actual questions that we might answer. It's this natural curiosity that eventually led Mark to author a new book on mountain lions titled The Cougar Conundrum, Sharing the World with a Successful Predator. I was encouraged to share my own opinions, which, you know, as a biologist, is an uncomfortable place. We aren't really encouraged to do that very often. The traditional role of the biologist, or at least what people think is supposed to, we're supposed to do, is go out in the field, we do some work, we write a report, we submit it to the authorities, or whoever they are, and our job is done, right? And then other people make decisions or have opinions about uh, what should be done. I embraced the opportunity to share because I think across genres, we're seeing biologists of all kinds, scientists of all kinds, play a greater role in public education and advocacy. And not the traditional advocate of sort of arm waving and what many folks think is sort of a more of an emotional approach to, to convincing folks to save a species or something like that, but really using science and what we know as fact versus fiction to build a case for some decision-making process. And so if I really did believe that we should do this, I figured it was time for me to step up and and play my part. And, and it was an important time because there's just, I mean, a ridiculous amount of misinformation about mountain lions floating about in the world, especially on the internet. Mountain lions kill for pleasure. Mountain lions do not have any natural predators. If we do not stop hunting mountain lions, we will drive them to extinction. Mountain lions attack people who approach their food somebody just needed to get out there and shake the trees and and say, oi, this is fact, this is fiction, and let's at least begin there. So let us begin then. Each year in the United States and Canada, 3,000 to 4,000 mountain lions are killed by humans, mostly for sports hunting and livestock protection. It is the leading cause of death for mountain lions everywhere in the United States. Hunting is big business in the US, and in many states, hunting fees fund a significant amount of revenue for the wildlife agencies that manage these natural habitats. You can't talk about mountain lions without talking about hunting. And it's just, you know, hunting influences how we manage mountain lions. Uh, There's the fights amongst different types of hunters. I mean, it's just, it's a constant theme if, if you work or are interested in mountain lions. So right now we have just under 5% of American adults are claimed to be hunters. That's a pretty small percent of Americans. And yet they are disproportionately paying for state wildlife programs. That's very different than saying they're disproportionately paying for conservation, which is not true. Non-hunters disproportionately pay for conservation. But state wildlife agencies, by design, are funded by, as you said, hunting fees and licenses, and also a federal supplement through the taxes on firearms, archery equipment, 
etc gets funneled into a separate bank account and then that feeds state wildlife agencies as well and so you'll hear this rhetoric that hunters are carrying conservation hunters pay for conservation that's what this means they're referring to the fact that they disproportionately pay for state wildlife programs and as i said it's by design they actually block other kinds of money because they're worried that that would you know increase the constituents that they now have to listen to we need to figure out quickly like how do we create alternative revenue streams for these state wildlife agencies to not just encourage but really to force them to widen their sort of view of who their constituents are and to begin to include a greater diversity of voices in wildlife decision making mountain lions are often targeted because they prey upon the populations of deer and elk which are prized by hunters one big question though was how many deer did mountain lion actually kill so they put a mountain lion onto a treadmill, which sounds ridiculous, but it measured the amount of energy that they use, and then they could estimate how many deer they would need to kill to meet their energy requirements. But Mark found these estimates never matched up to what he saw in the field. They killed lots of deer. In fact, three times more than they actually needed. One of the things that I think is happening is that they're a subordinate species. So they're like cheetahs or leopards. They're an animal in the middle. Yes, they're what you might hear as an apex predator. It's a common phrase you hear these days. You know, one of the top of the food chain, essentially, right? But but mountain lions aren't the very tip top of the food chain over most of their range, or at least historically. They have gray wolves, brown bears, black bears, jaguars, uh, even Maine wolves and coyotes occasionally displace mountain lions from resources. It seems that they've sort of evolved to kill a certain amount of food that allows them to survive, plus allows for all of these other animals that are dominant over them to steal from them without any real change in their lives. And it, it's amazing. It's it, the number, the percent of kills lost to bears, wolves, etc., other scavengers for mountain lions is almost identical to what's lost for cheetahs, to lions, hyenas, etc., etc. And it's right about 30%. And so it seems like they can lose a third of what they kill. That's a lot. You think about that. A third of the deer and elk they're killing every year are just lost, gone, poof. Um, and that that's okay. That, that their lives don't change unless it goes beyond that. Then, you know, perhaps they have to actually kill more animals to compensate or do something like that. And now we know that they kill a lot. In fact, you know, about three times as much as they need. And so where does all this food go? And it's not just wasted. It's not like they kill an extra deer and it goes and it goes in the dumpster, right? Carrion is the decaying flesh of dead animals. And this is what mountain lions produced with the extra deer and animals they killed. It sounds a bit morbid, but what Mark and researchers found is that this carrion is an incredible source of biodiversity and becomes like a Times Square or Shibuya Crossing for all the animals, birds, plants, and insects of the ecosystem. We've actually got real mathematical evidence that shows that it deposits nitrogen and phosphorus and all of these things, which are uptick by the plants immediately around the carcass, that these things are spread and utilized across the landscape. So you have all of that happening. And then these vertebrate scavengers are coming in. And our work in Wyoming, for instance, showed 39 species of birds and, and mammals feeding from these carcasses and carrying the energy away from these carcasses across the landscape, spreading it even further. And you know what's fascinating about that is that it's a greater number of scavengers, of types of scavengers, of different birds and mammals, 
than any other study of carrion anywhere else in the world, regardless of where it came from, whether it was human hunters or city dumps or other big predators. And it speaks to their ability to feed a network, if you will, a web, if you want to visualize it that way, of wildlife on the landscape. And that's kind of the analogy I like to kind of just talk about in terms of picturing things in your brain, is if you think of a forest community as, as a web, right, of all of these things interconnecting. And so when you've got mountain lions in that system, there's lots and lots of linkages. There's more web links than in systems without them. Deer aren't typically connected to mice and squirrels and chickadees and other birds and things like that, woodpeckers. But the second that deer is dead, all of those animals are actually feeding on the carcass. And so there are now direct links between deer and woodpeckers. It's very complex. And that's what really builds resilience because you can move energy around. The more linkages you have, the more ways you can move energy around to heal the whole. And so if you have a very sort of simple system and you can't move energy, you're going to run into to walls and not be able to heal or recover a system as quickly. And so mountain lions, as far as we can tell in terms of carrion production and spreading energy through woodpeckers and weasels and skunks and raccoons and foxes, etc., etc., all feeding on these carcasses and moving energy around through the system being upticked by plants in the soil, feeding them the soil mitochondria. I mean, just like all sorts of stuff, the myrosial mushroom layer underneath, all of this stuff is being fed, the carbon cycle, by these carcasses being dropped by mountain lions, which are not random, of course. They're placed in the exact same areas over time, repeatedly, repeatedly becoming hot spots of nitrogen and phosphorus, which feed the carbon cycle and all these things over time. You know, as surprising as it is for most folks, you know, the, one of the best things you can do in terms of supporting healthy ecosystem is to make sure that, that mountain lions are present and killing prey. Now that's all well and good, but the argument for supporting healthy ecosystems sometimes isn't enough to convince people and policymakers to support healthy populations of mountain lions. So some smart people began to think, well, how can we describe the value, like real actual dollar value of healthy ecosystems to people. So they introduced this fancy term called ecosystem services. And it turns out the mountain lion is an excellent provider of these. So mountain lions, they don't really, they won't drive deer to extinction if you let them just keep eating deer. But they will provide some sort of boundaries or limits on that population. So they can kind of curb a deer population over time. And when you look at what deer would look like without any mountain lions present versus what they look like with mountain lions present, there's a difference in the number of deer. And so that, of course, translates directly into the number of deer on roads. And since deer collisions are incredibly dangerous for people and incredibly expensive for not just individual people, but for county governments, for state governments, there's, you know, for insurance companies, I mean, it's a constant stress, right? As people running into deer and elk and moose and all these things. It's not just hunters looking out for deer this time of the year. It also seems to be peak season for deer vehicle collisions. New at 5.30, it's that time of year, prime season for deer running out in front of your car. A new alert tonight from Cincinnati's AAA. The group says deer and car crashes are spiking this month. Now drivers on the road are at risk as the most dangerous months for car deer crashes arrives. 
And so people were able to quantify, you know, what would be the effect or the savings by introducing mountain lions into a landscape. And one of the best case uh, studies for that was South Dakota in the Black Hills, because there were no mountain lions. And then they established a breeding population and began to live there. And so they could look at deer collisions up to when the breeding population began and then following. And they showed that it saved the state of, of South Dakota about a million dollars a year, which is, you know, incredible. But, but more important than that, it saved human lives. And so the, the authors of that study went even further and they said, what if we were to get mountain lions to move east? It would reset the deer population, which is completely out of control because there's no wolves, there's no mountain lions, there's no large predators at all. They're just people, right? And in many places, deer are absolutely rampant through everyone's neighborhoods all over the place. And it's just, they're everywhere. And so they say, okay, it's going to curb the deer population. And it could save, like over the next 30 years, it was something like $2.1 billion. And more importantly, something like 250, 300 people would keep their lives. And then there would be, I can't remember how many fewer human injuries because you know, many people survive hitting a deer, but they are injured. And it's just an incredible savings. Deer are also subject to a prion disease called chronic wasting disease, or CWD. It leads to drastic weight loss, stumbling, and other neurological symptoms before they eventually die. Once a deer has CWD, it can quickly spread throughout a population and can stay in the environment a long time. This is a big deal for elk and moose managers, depending on where you are in the United States. And, you know, so the only way to really curb CWD is to go out and shoot sick deer. And that's what people do. They hire sharpshooters just to weed out the deer that look like they're showing some neurological issues, you know, because they get wobbly. They start doing things. They start browsing dead plants, you know, that there's actually no nutrition at all. They'll start eating it as if it's normal food. And there's all sorts of degenerative sort of behaviors as the, as the disease progresses. But the fact that mountain lions seem to be selecting them out of the population, therefore reducing the risk of spread, was fascinating. It's only been looked at once, you know, with a very small sample of mountain lions. If it held true in sort of follow-up studies, that would be incredible. I mean, everybody can get behind the idea of limiting the spread of CWD. I mean, the hardcore elk hunters would suddenly think that mountain lions are the greatest thing in the world if that were true. Um, so that would be great. People have this irrational fear of mountain lions, when in reality, there's only been 27 documented fatal attacks on humans in the last 100 years in North America. For some perspective, cows kill about 20 people each year from trampling. There's about 30 fatal dog attacks every year, and even bees and other stinging insects kill around 100 people each year. Mountain lions, for the most part, stay away from people. And there's some evidence to suggest that hunting mountain lions increases the chance of a negative encounter. Over time, it's clear that one of the major indirect effects of hunting is reducing the average age of mountain lions in populations and increasing the number of sub-adult mountain lions in populations. That's where we can kind of say we, we know that for certain. And beyond that, what I can say is that there is evidence, in fact, growing evidence that these sub-adult mountain lions, the ones without territories, the ones that are young, they're inexperienced, they don't really know where to hunt yet because they don't have a territory. These are the ones that have come into conflict with us the most often. And that might be a human safety issue. So meeting someone on a trail, uh, or it might be killing someone's dog. 
or eating a goat in the backyard. These are the animals that are most often associated with those kinds of negative interactions. And in terms of human safety, uh, you know, younger, hungry mountain lions are the most dangerous to people, without doubt. That's what the research has shown by looking at the last, you know, 100 years of encounters, bad encounters between people and mountain lions. That's what comes up to the surface, is hungry, younger mountain lions are the most dangerous. And so if that's true, and if hunting, you know, at least some level of hunting or a threshold knocks down the average age of mountain lions and actually increases the number of young mountain lions in the population, then yes, hunting is decreasing human safety and increasing conflicts with wildlife, I mean, with livestock and pets. So what does the future look like for the mountain lion in the US? I hope it's peaceful coexistence. I hope it's mountain lions, you know, that my kids grow up with mountain lions all around them. But it really is up to us. I, I worry, you know, the world is becoming more and more polarized, whether it's politics or whatever you consider. And mountain lions are no exception. Right now, mountain lions, in terms of conservation management and all the players, has just evolved into total mudslinging. There's no progress anymore. We're just mired in fighting on social media. Uh, advocates saying this and hunters saying this and no one's working together. I would hope in 10 years that we've moved forward and naturally see collaborative approaches to the conservation and management of the species. My name is Mark Elbrock and if you are interested in learning more about mountain lions, I encourage you to follow us on Facebook. You can find the individual program that I work for, the Panthera Puma program on Facebook. It should pop up. And you can also find us at panthera.org. So www.panthera.org. Not the old metal band Panthera. Panthera, which is the genus for most of the world's large cats. Thank you so much to Dr. Mark Elbrock for your insights. And please check out his book, The Cougar Conundrum. You can find links on where to buy it at catsofthewild.com or simply search for The Cougar Conundrum. Cats of the Wild is created by me, Andy Barbell. Theme music is by Score Squad. Other music and sound effects from Envato. New episodes are released every few weeks. So follow us on Instagram at Cats of the Wild Podcast or subscribe on your favorite podcast app.